This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. One of the other things, though, that also came into effect uh, with the ringing in of 2018 were some changes to payday lenders. And we know about the controversy and we know about the concern that's been raised about that. Well, the government says they've addressed an awful lot of that with legislation that went into effect. So how is this going to impact them? Let's talk to Tom Cooper about that, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tom, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Bill. Just finished some snow shoveling and have to get back out there soon to finish it off. <laughs> well, okay, and uh, you know, when you finish mine, my car's out here. And, I'm... <laughs> and listen, before I get into the, the, to the payday stuff, i got to ask you, just because I, I just got back after a couple of weeks off, obviously, uh, your read on, on the Tim Horton stuff about uh, basically punishing uh, employees for the uh, the government policy. Uh, you told us uh, during a number of times that you visited us last year when this was being talked about and the legislation was passed that you were afraid of pushback. Did this surprise you at all? It didn't surprise me. I'm certainly disappointed, Bill. Uh, this is a multi-million dollar company. They made uh, $100 million in profits last year. Uh, the, the other issue with Tim Hortons is that they just recently raised prices in August, and, and that was because, according to them, uh, they foresaw the minimum wage increase. And uh, so to have individual franchise owners uh, now cutting back on employee benefits is absolutely despicable. Uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, visiting Tim Hortons anytime soon until uh, they have a solid commitment to their workers and commit to lifting all of, all of their workers out of poverty. Well, there's, uh, there's going to be some pushback, and we'll talk about the, uh, the response from the parent company from Restaurant Brands International a little bit later on in the program. Let's, let's get into this other issue, uh, the lower fees for payday loans here in the province of Ontario. This is in response to an awful lot of work that uh, your organization and others right across the province have done uh, because of the concern. And I guess the obvious question is, what is new about the legislation and what kind of an impact is it going to have? Yeah, there there are significant changes. I, I don't know if they're going to have as deep an impact as, as maybe the government's purporting they will have. Uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years are the amount that payday lenders are allowed to charge uh, in, in interest has, has been lowered. It, it used to sit at $21 on 100 uh, it was lowered last year to $18 on $100, and, and now on January 1st, it, it was lowered again to $15 on 100 And while that may seem like a reasonable amount, uh, if you advertise that over over a year, uh, the annual interest rate these payday lenders are, are charging is actually amounting to 391% annual interest rates. And and that's predatory uh, by my books. And, and certainly I think uh, the government needs to do a lot more to, to cap these interest rates and to really rein in the excesses of, of this runaway industry that's really preying on people with nowhere else to turn. We need to talk about that because I know the uh, the, the ads are still on television and, and I guess on radio, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, and they, they'll sell themselves and say, hey, you're only going to pay 100 bucks on this loan or whatever the case might be, you know, depending on how much you're borrowing, I guess. But they don't talk about the fact that that's only if you pay it off in full at the prescribed time. That's like credit card companies saying, what are you worried about? I mean, if you pay off the balance, everything's going to be fine. Well, the problem is most of these people can't do that, and they get exactly. caught in this downward spiral all of a sudden. 
Exactly. And, and that's really what the payday loan industry is predicated upon, is, is people coming back time and time again uh, to take out more and more loans. So what we will typically see are, are these aggressive marketing campaigns that, uh, em- that are employed by the payday lenders to, to draw people in. And then once you get that first loan, um, they're hoping people will come back time and time again. Once you get out that first loan and you go to pay it back, you have to pay off the entire balance. Uh, but then you realize that, well, gee, I don't have enough money left over for my rent or for groceries, and so I take out another loan. And that becomes an endless cycle for people, and that's why we're seeing people falling into thousands, tens of thousands of debt to these places. And and they really are vultures. They prey on uh, the hopes that people will come back and, and are desperate because they can't get uh, credit at traditional financial institutions like banks or, or credit unions. What has happened in that regard? Because that's something that we talked about at, at great length, Tom, as a possible solution. And there is no one solution to this. It's going to be a multi-pronged approach to try to deal with these issues and to try to deal with those that are, are living in poverty uh, and at the same time trying to pay off the bills and, and, and you know feed their kids, etc. But we talked about accessibility to money, whether it's going to be traditional banks or, or credit unions. Uh, does the legislation address that? Has there been any move at all to try to make that, that happen? Not at all. And I really think uh, there there needs to be a better uh, aligned federal strategy on that, particularly around the, the big banks and charter banks, ensuring that their financial services are more accessible uh, to people of low incomes and people with bad credit. Oftentimes, and I, I've seen people tweet about this this morning in, in response to uh, me coming on, on the show to talk about this, uh, banks hold checks often for, for five days or longer, and, and that can put people in a very tight uh, situation if their rent is due or utility bill is due. Um, we know the uh, traditional financial institutions just aren't there to uh, to offer uh, services to people who fall into into those financial traps. Now, the provincial government uh, about a year ago did open up some space for credit unions to move into. Uh, sort of the payday lending environment and offer a similar product at at much lower interest rates. Uh, Not very many credit unions have taken up that challenge, though. Uh, There's been one in Windsor. uh, There's a nonprofit in Ottawa that's doing something similar. I'm having uh, having some local conversations, and uh, City Councillor Matthew Green has been leading uh, some dialogue with local credit unions about that option. But we haven't seen anything concrete yet, unfortunately. What about the aspect about the municipalities themselves? You talked about what Hamilton City Council has attempted to do, and Councillor Green and others on Council, of course, have spoken out about this. Uh, does this new legislation give municipalities uh, more muscle to try to deal with this issue? It does, and, and that's where I, I'm really optimistic about the uh, opportunities presented uh, with this new year and this new legislation coming down. So. I, I really think the payday loan uh, industry has operated in a vacuum of, of lax government oversight over the last 20 years, and they've had a free ride. Uh, but what the province has, has done, uh, instead of maybe taking on strong leadership themselves, they've allowed municipalities to now zone uh, payday lending outlets. And uh, so we, ha- we saw Hamilton step up 
a couple years ago with uh, Ontario's first licensing of payday loan outlets and uh, Jason Thorne and uh, and Ken Leanders in, in the licensing department uh, did a great job of bringing in some some I think innovative and bold solutions to uh, ensuring people who are going to visit payday loan outlets knew their rights, uh, knew how much interest they're paying and, and had options to go to uh, credit counseling in the community. Um, what this new legislation really does is take that a step further, and it will allow municipalities to basically zone payday loan outlets. And uh, so, like we've seen with other industries in the uh, in the city, uh, city council can now choose to to look at um, only having a specific number of payday loan outlets in, in certain neighborhoods, for example, if if they're already saturated. So, I, yeah, but I there's a there's a there's a twist to that though, Tom, that we need to talk about. Uh, and that's that these are grandfathered. In other words, if there are 16 of them in a neighborhood now, they're allowed to stay. Uh, they, they can't yeah. do anything about that. Yeah, and, and that is, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, we will see, I think, uh, limited new payday loan outlets uh, opening up. Uh, but where, yeah, you're right, where, uh, where they already exist now, it will be very difficult to get rid of them because they are grandfathered and i'm sure they'd uh, they'd put up a a big legal fight if uh if uh they were tried to close down by the municipal government um but i think it it does send a strong message at least uh to these payday loan outlets that their days are numbered and uh that we won't be seeing any new payday loan outlets popping up in the community what are you hearing from uh, some of the agencies and some of the groups and frankly some of the clients that have been, uh, let's, I guess the right word here is victimized by these. Do they, do they feel confident this legislation is going to make their situation better? And, and you're absolutely right. They do feel victimized. I, I don't think most people who have used the uh, payday loan services think this legislation goes far enough. Certainly um, the rates are still extraordinarily high. Uh, the tactics used by the industry are, are aggressive and, um, you know, we, we call them predators, we call them vultures, and that's exactly what they are. Uh, Somebody just tweeted to me a few minutes ago saying, uh, these places are like gangs or cults, and, and they really do draw people in and it makes it very, very difficult to get out of that payday loan debt. Uh, so what I think we need to do is, is a three-pronged approach in terms of the federal, provincial, and municipal governments. We need the federal government to really look at the criminal interest rate uh, that they use through the Criminal Code of Canada. It's set at 60% so that no lender in Canada is allowed to charge more than 60% interest a year on, on a loan. Um, these payday loan outlets get past that because uh, they've been uh, they've been deferred by provincial legislation. So I think the federal government needs to get back into this and, and really restrict uh, who's allowed to uh, lend out money at, uh, at, uh, at these high interest rates. I think the provincial government needs to do much more in terms of advertising. You know, let's stop these gimmicks that the payday lenders are using. Get your first loan for a dollar or whatever. Um, we, we really need to, uh, I think, uh, try to look at this industry like we would any other um, uh, really uh, service that's bad for our health, like uh, alcohol or or smoking. We need something akin to cigarette warning labels plastered all over the front of these payday loan outlets. And I think uh, municipally, uh, the city's already taken a great leadership role, and I I look forward in the next uh, month or two to seeing uh, new proposals by staff to to, uh, zone these payday loan outlets, hopefully out of existence in a few years. 
The government's answer, the provincial government's answer to this, Tom, uh, to some of the shortcomings that you've already addressed here, is that, well, well, well this is only step one. Uh, because I do know that with this legislation, uh, in the summertime, July 1st, I believe, is, is the date, uh, there are some other aspects that come into play that they say are going to address some of those. And, and, and I guess, you know, the devil's in the details with some of these things. The, the one that did stick out for me, though, that I find rather interesting is uh, on July 1st, uh, phase two of this will indicate that lenders will also have to give customers the option of extended payment plan without penalties. Now, now that may sound on the surface like a pretty good idea, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really address the fact that they've still got to pay that money back. And oftentimes they go down the street to another payday loan company to get the money to do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and we really do need some databases uh, to show uh, really who's, who's using payday loan outlets. And, and you're absolutely right. That happens quite often that uh, if people are using one payday loan uh, company uh, and, and aren't able to get a loan from it uh, because they owe money, they may walk across the street and, and just use the other one. Um, the, uh, the new regulations that the province is bringing in will help a little bit, but uh, that's only after the third loan, you're allowed to develop a, uh, a an extended payment plan, which you know I think is good. It will help in the long run, and that's what they're doing in Alberta. But it doesn't go far enough, I don't think. I, I think we really do need to cut back on these interest rates. Uh, this this is an industry that is raking in the uh, raking in the profits, and, and the other big problem with it is. Uh, the, the industry, by and large, is not Canadian-owned. These are, these are uh, uh, outlets that are owned by holding companies that are often located in the United States or overseas. And uh, this is money that is really being drained from uh, the good people of our community and, and taken right out of our community. This isn't money that's being recirculated in the local economy. And uh, so that's something I think we need to keep in mind. Uh, this is an industry, I think, whose time has come and, and really needs to be shut down. Why can't financial institutions, um, and I'm going to put banks and credit unions into the same pot here for the, for the sake of this conversation, Tom, why can't they design uh, a new format, a new formula for low-income Canadians to, to be able to borrow money instead of simply saying, no, you guys don't qualify? Because that's basically forcing them out that door and down the street to the payday loan company. It is. And I don't know the answer to that, Bill. I, I, I really think there needs to be some government leadership uh, to ensure that uh, low-income people can better access uh, the financial institutions. Uh, we, we've just seen uh, the, the big banks rake in uh, their annual profits. I think it was $42 million, uh, in uh, uh, just for one of them uh, recently in, in announced annual profits. So uh, these, are, these are big institutions that are making money, uh, but they're not giving back uh, to communities and they're not giving back to, uh, to people who need those services the most. And, and so I think there needs to be some leadership, I think, at the federal level, because, uh, because the charter, bank is, uh, charter banks are, are under federal jurisdiction. I think that's where we need to, we need to see it start. Um, but again, uh, credit unions have an important role to play, and commu- credit unions are, are community-based entities by and large, although many have grown. But uh, I, I think they do have that, uh, they, they continue to have that uh, relationship with uh, local communities and local neighborhoods, and, and this is where they can really take some leadership. So we'll be having some conversations with some local credit unions over the next little while, and hopefully seeing uh, some results from that. Note to the government, uh, don't put the toolbox away, the job is not yet done. Tom, thanks as always, sure. great talking with you again today. 
Thanks, Bill. Tom Cooper, of course, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A uh, Hamilton City Councilor wants staff to gauge community interest in regards to offering green burials. You ever even heard of green burials? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jason Farr, the Councilor for Ward 2, downtown Hamilton, as he joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show. Councilor Farr, how are you this morning, sir? Happy New Year, Bill. And to you, too. And to you, too. Snow and slush and, uh, well, we're getting through it. We are, slowly but surely. Uh, i got some concerns about how long it took the plows to get up, but that's uh, an issue I'll discuss later on with you when we get into budget stuff. But uh, with all that going on and with the concern about uh, HSR service and LRT, you've heard of LRT and a number of other things, where did the idea of green burials come into play here? Well, a very engaged uh, central uh, neighborhood uh, resident, Rochelle Martin, who works with the community uh, uh, um, uh, death awareness and, and advocates for it. Uh, she's been uh, an educator for a while, I guess, but uh, it really, uh, in this case, uh, was an article I read last week from uh, Emma Riley in the Hamilton Spectator, uh, where uh, Rochelle was advocating uh, uh, um, and engaging with certain city staff, I believe uh, Kara Bunn, yeah, who does incredible work in our parks and cemeteries department through Public Works and others. Not my office, however, uh, but uh, she had uh, written a, a brief article about how, um, you know, it was, it was becoming a bit of a slow process. That uh, Rochelle was very interested in, in uh, pursuing at least the feasibility of this for Hamilton, as it does exist in about four other communities throughout Canada. It's an area of her expertise. And uh, when I read the article, I thought, oh, there's absolutely no reason why Council can't at least formalize some initiative that uh, asks staff with council's approval, obviously through ratification, uh, to sort of pursue it, look into it, and, and at the same time sort of garner an interest in the public is something we want to pursue. Well, well, let's back up a little bit then, Jay. What exactly is a green burial? What's in t- what, what's what's that entail? Well, probably better to say it's a natural burial. It's it's when we return the body to uh, as natural a state as possible after death, and, and it, it's essentially a, a, an option. Uh, end-of-life uh, option bill uh, that uh, is gaining popularity throughout North America and certainly uh, something that, like I say, four other communities, three in Ontario, one out in Victoria, that, that are already doing this. And so there's no embalming. Um, there's no environmental footprint whatsoever with respect to uh, this particular end-of-life uh, procedure or method, uh, service, or whatever you want to, uh, however you want to identify it. And uh, it, it uh, is something that can happen in a uh, and a local grassland, local forest, uh, certainly an area that, uh, uh, from an environmental standpoint, without the embalming, without the without the um, uh, the process uh, uh, processes currently attached to an end of life scenario, uh, you are obviously not leaving an environmental footprint, but you're also uh, potentially um, uh, creating uh, woodlands or grasslands uh, that would be uh, obviously maintained over time as as such. So there's a preservation aspect to a natural burial or green burial as well. So you're suggesting that if the city were to do something like this, and let's go down that hypothetical road for just a minute here, is that this not would not necessarily be restricted to cemetery lands? No, it wouldn't have to be. And certainly um, it's been suggested, and I've had quite a bit of feedback on this actually through emails to my uh uh, city email accounts in the last three, four days since the attention. And uh, it, it, it can, we can look at uh, 
anything we own, uh, you know, as far as a report back, obviously, uh, but certainly it can be areas that uh, if there is a private uh, sector interest that may have a forest nearby or a, a greenfield nearby or a combination of both that may be interested in getting into this uh, uh, growing natural uh, burial uh, option, that's something we could look at too. But no, it doesn't have to be one of the many cemeteries. And I think per capita, we probably manage the most cemeteries as a city in, in the nation, if not Ontario. And, 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 you know, RBG lands maybe, I'm going to say maybe because we'll let staff sort of look at this. Conservation lands maybe options here. So uh, that's uh, yet to be determined, but certainly it doesn't have to be what we consider now and what we see now as the traditional cemetery. With that in mind, though, uh, is there a concern? And I, I, I know that we're getting way ahead of ourselves here because you haven't even really presented the motion yet. But uh, and, and when you do, it's going to be exploratory. We'll get some of those details in a second. But, but are you opening a Pandora's box here where somebody's going to come along and simply say, well, look at you, let them bury their loved one over here. Uh, why can't I have my uh, remains buried at Sam Lawrence Park? Why can't I go to Woodlands Park? Why can't I go to Home Plate at, uh, at uh, you know, Inch Park and, and have my remains buried there? I mean, uh, do you put restrictions on this? Or if it's city land, then all, all things are open? I mean, where, where do you go on this? No, I would suggest that restrictions would be uh, mandatory. I'm sure the report will suggest the same, and you're right, we don't want to get ahead of the report, but no, there would be a designated natural green burial areas uh, if we were to proceed with something like this. And Yeah, and it, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't, it, I, I never envisioned it. In fact, this is the first I've heard of this potential eventuality, and you're very good at presenting eventualities that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, on the program when I join you. But no, this wouldn't be something that we would entertain. I'm certain of that. But uh, we'll wait and see what the report says. Certainly what we've envisioned here with the motion is to look at designated areas. What are good potential footprint areas that we can preserve the environment and and, uh, offer this uh, particular burial option for people who are interested? And Bill, I'm telling you, a lot of people are interested. You know, back in the radio days, you used to always hear from people like Nevin Grant or Jeff Story, and they'd say, when you'd hear from one listener, it doesn't necessarily represent the views of one. It can represent, in fact, the views of hundreds or even thousands. And I've had well, well over 10 or 15 uh, emails directly to me since the stories came out last week of folks that are interested. So one of the things that we're going to do, and I've spoken to Kara Bunn, who would ultimately, upon ratification by council, uh, go forward and look at this as a feasibility study. We'll continue to collect those names of those people that may be interested. And if the city does get into this uh, business, like the Colberg Ontarios and the Pickerings and the Brampton Ontarios and uh, out in Victoria, B.C., uh, certainly we'll have a, a running start with those folks who have, have, have shared with me quite adamantly and quite positively their interest in, in, in such an option. What's the advantage to the city in, in even getting involved in something like this? Well, I thought about that. We're already involved. Like I say, I, you know, I'm not, you know, don't quote me on it, but I'm fairly certain that we, we per capita are more involved in the cemetery business than most cities in, in Canada. Uh, so we're already in that business. We have staff uh, devoted to sales uh, and, and arrangements. We have a wonderful team through our, our Parks and Cemeteries office that uh, maintain and operate uh, a number of cemeteries. I don't have the, a firm number on that, but uh, do a very good job. And, and, you know, we're well-versed in the traditional methods, let's call them for now. And uh, certainly, and one of the other things I've learned in the last uh, few days, and I've learned quite a lot about these green burials uh, since uh, Rochelle, our engaged downtown citizen, uh, brought it forward through a spectator article, 
is that uh, you know there, there's there's a lot of opportunities for people that where they may have not may have not existed in the past uh, to to you know have the, have this option and and uh, work with with our, our already qualified city staff who are on the legislation piece already they've been involved in looking at the provincial legislation understanding that there are three communities already offering this in ontario how can we offer it here that would be part of the report if approved what about costing i, I mean if you're going to offer a service there's going to be a cost Do you charge cost recovery uh is is this something that the city's going to have to bear some of the responsibility financially for no. how, do you, how do you foresee this well i don't believe where uh, it's a money losing operation with cemeteries as they exist right now so it wouldn't be something that i'm sure my colleagues or myself would be interested in losing money on the cost itself for a natural burial interestingly enough it's somewhere between um uh, in-ground burial and cremations cremations would be actually a cheaper option but from the environmental standpoint uh one of that's one of the major drivers or reasons why we want to look at this in terms of a feasibility but uh no we wouldn't look at this as a, a loss loser for sure you understand that when you're going down this road of saying, well, we already uh, you know, operate and, and manage more cemeteries than most other communities, uh, that's a pretty touchy subject for an awful lot of people. The, the fact that Hamilton seems to be in that business. I mean, they have more go- public golf courses than any other municipality. Uh, they have more senior uh, retirement homes than any other city, uh, twice the number that they're supposed to have right now. Uh, and at some point, somebody, you know, Councillor, during the budget discussions over the next couple of months is going to raise that and said, why are we adding to these costs when other municipalities are doing less work and being just as effective? Yeah, fair enough. But I would suggest and perhaps argue at the time if the Councillor rightly wants to bring that up because I will be moving this motion January 24th at Council. And even if it wants to be referred to the budget process, that's fine, too. We're essentially asking for a report back. In the report back bill, obviously, costs will be part of uh that report, but when we kind of envision a cemetery now and how we may have the cost associated to operating and maintaining the current traditional cemetery, and then look what we're asking for here, which is a natural approach. There's really not a lot of maintenance and operating as it relates to operating a, a, a woodland or a meadow or a combination of both. In fact, it would go against uh, what, what appears to me in the research I've done in the last few days. Uh, what those folks who are interested in natural burials are looking for. They want a completely natural environment uh, uh, where to, to, uh, to consider their end-of-life option in and want to be as naturally as possible, in fact, as natural as you can get, uh, buried in, in, in that uh, uh, specific environment. And so, you know, there, there wouldn't be a great deal of cost, I would suspect, associated to maintaining what folks are asking for, which is a natural environment. We should. I, I don't want to get too prescriptive about this, but as I understand this process, and and uh, I, I was away last week, so I'm just trying to play catch up on on some of this stuff as I was reading your motion this morning, Jay. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's no casket involved in this. This is no. a, a different process altogether. Yeah. No. No headstones. No markers. Essentially, uh, some may prefer markers, but they may be natural as well. So they may plant a tree, or or natural rock is used. But again. Uh, zero environmental impact because of these natural markers that are associated to, to for what I've researched to date, Bill. Um, that that seems to be the case. So so it's an all natural marker if indeed markers are going to be part of the uh, process for those who choose to go this route. If we go this route, what are you looking for from staff here when you present this motion? Well, I'm not. You know, it's a great question because yes, you are. Hitting the nail on the head, in particular today, today, a lot of us elected officials, in fact, everybody else who's really seriously getting back at it today, are thinking the same thing. 
we have a lot to do. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not looking for a James Joyce novel in terms of a report. Carabun is one of our crack staffers, one of the best parks and cemeteries uh, workers the city's probably ever had. She's also very, very busy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when, what the motion asked for is two things. What's the feasibility? Can we do that here in Hamilton? Well, I mean, that's part of researching legislation which staff has already been doing. So you formalize that with the council motion. The second thing that the motion is asking for, Bill, is essentially, um, I guess we could say, um, you know, community interest. How, how can we go out and take a look at folks that are, well, I've already got 15 or so emails that I've already forwarded along, and so there's a running start on that. But we don't need to host uh, town halls, and we don't need to spend an inordinate amount of time. We have a, a great uh, website right now, hamilton.ca, and when we have um, uh, opportunities to engage to that website, likely in this case, what all we would need to do and what I would suggest, haven't formally suggested that yet to staff, I leave it to the experts, but I might suggest that on the homepage, we just run um, uh, um, a notice that uh, gives folks through an online uh, engagement uh, an opportunity to to chime in on whether or not they'd be interested in something like this. And so that 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 could be easily done, and it's in a very cost-effective way. It could run for uh, two days or two months, and, and ultimately uh, we can get a very good sense through an online effort like that uh, who, who may be interested. And, of course, we'll pay attention to programs like yours if you choose to discuss the topic down the line as well. Well, and uh, and the reason I'm bringing up some of these ideas, and I know some, as you mentioned, sometimes these are things that maybe you didn't th- discuss, and staff may come forward with some of these when they do their report, is, is you know, uh, things down the road, challenges down the road on this. And and, and I think the one about location is, is, is well stated here. That uh, I mean, in your motion here, you talk about, uh, the city of Hamilton may have both the resources and the potential land in bracket cemeteries right. and otherwise. Uh, that that's far too vague, obviously, because uh, you're going to get requests all over the place. And who's going to make the determination about what lands are going to be available for this? Is it going to be council? Is it going to be staff? Uh, what are the criteria going to be? I mean, there's there's an awful lot to decide here, uh, because essentially what you're doing is uh, as you, you you're describing this as a one-off. But I mean, are you going to get into a situation? where there's going to be a burial ground now, for instance, at the RBG, just to use your hypothetical situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. And you're talking about many, many hectares at the RBG, so so if we were to choose that route, and I'm not suggesting that would be the route we're going to choose, we'll let the uh, report uh, speak to possible locations. Um, you know, obviously we would want to be sensitive to the fact that uh, that particular parcel, whether it's a few acres or less, uh, you know, would be uh, clearly marked and identified and, and be a, a um, we work with the organizations like the Conservation Authority or the RBG if we were to move forward in that that fashion. And one of the things you asked me earlier about, can you just, you know, if someone wants Sam Lawrence Park and it's all natural, we should just let it slide. Well, as a matter of fact, now I just remembered this, and I'm glad you brought it up again. Provincial legislation probably wouldn't dictate it. So we're still legislated by the province on how cemeteries work. This would still be a cemetery, albeit a green burial or a natural cemetery and there's requirements uh, uh, of course with all provincial legislation a great deal of them as it relates to cemeteries which interestingly enough i've learned bill through this uh, process and i'm fascinated by it and clearly a lot of people are uh typically cemeteries are zoned industrial industrial uses so there's also the zoning questions that will be needed to be answered if this uh, report passes through council some of my colleagues as well have been interested in 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 this and 
uh, uh, one is uh, suggested he move it through public works, and I wanted to do it through council. So let everybody chime in. Council allows all of us as one body to discuss it. But uh, yeah, I, it's funny, you know, you, you move a lot of motions over seven and a half years, and uh, this is one that's uh, certainly per- piqued uh, the interest of a great number of people, and I've been uh, appreciating the engagement. It's come at a good time. Well, it's uh, going to be fascinating to see what kind of response you get to this, uh, and we'll certainly stay in touch. Jay, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Happy New Year again, Bill. Day. You Everybody too. CHML. Bye-bye. Councillor Jason Farr from Ward 2, who will be moving motion about green burials for the city of Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's put this in context for you. Tim Tim Hortons is a, well, it's an international company now, uh, uh, but there's a, a, a special affiliation, obviously, between Tim Hortons and the city of Hamilton because the first Tim Hortons donut shop was right here in Hamilton at Ottawa and Dunsmuir. The Tim Hortons Museum is there now. Store 2 was up on concession in East 31st. Store 3 was the Upper James Store, which is a drive through now. And so on and on it goes. So there's some history here. So from a sentimental standpoint, obviously, you, you want to see what's going on with Tim Hortons because we saw how that company started here and how it's grown. Well... Uh, it's not local anymore, as we know. It's been sold a couple of different times. There was the affiliation with Wendy's some years ago. Uh, now uh, it's owned by a company called uh, Restaurant Brands International. Uh, but there's still a great deal of controversy about what's been happening. Part of it uh, came from a number of franchise owners uh, last year who complained that they were getting ripped off by the parent company, saying it they were charging more for supplies, uh, taking a, a lot more of the profit, uh, which, by the way, is, is the way things run with franchisees. Uh, they pay the uh, head office before they take a nickel for themselves. And and so there's some consternation about that. Well, then along comes Jan- July or January 1st and the minimum wage increase here in the province of Ontario. It's now up to $14 an hour. And uh, Tim Hortons and many other companies, of course, uh, made an awful lot of noise when this was being proposed and then eventually the legislation passed that said, look, we're going to have to do something about this. We simply can't absorb that kind of a, a, an additional cost to our business. Well, some of the individual franchisees started to speak up about this and said that they were going to uh, start cutting benefits to employees, start cutting paid breaks to employees, start charging them for uh, the coffee or the one free drink that they usually get on a shift. And uh, the parent company has now lashed back and said that, well, these were rogue franchisees and that they don't really speak for the head office and for the company itself. Which is an interesting characterization, given the fact that the first ones that actually came to light on this were Ron Joyce Jr. and his wife, Jerry Lynn Horton Joyce. Uh, Ron Joyce Jr., of course, is the son of Ron Joyce, one of the founders of Tim Hortons. Uh, Jerry Lynn Horton Joyce is the daughter of Tim Horton, uh, the Toronto Maple Leaf, at that time hockey player, who is the original partner with Ron Joyce in the franchise. Uh, are they rogue? Are they speaking for the other ones? Because uh, a number of other franchisees have now spoken up and said, we're going to have to do the same sort of thing. What's going on here? And, and how is this impacting the brand, which I think you could argue is one of the most identifiable brands in Canada? Uh, this kind of infighting can't be good, or does it really matter at all? Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University up in Ottawa. Ian, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing just fine. The weather's actually, for the first time in probably three or four weeks, becoming reasonable. It was miserable this morning here in Hamilton. We got some uh, unexpected snow, and uh, it's it's too. it's starting to get a little more mild right now. So, but who knows? I mean, it's it's January and it's Canada, so you just you know if you That's don't right. like the weather, wait ten minutes, right? That's right, exactly. What, what what's your read on what's been going on with Tim Hortons in the last little right. while, Ian? 
Um, first off, I want to disclose I do not have any relationship with Tim Hortons other than the fact that I'm a satisfied customer, a regular customer of Tim Hortons. I do not consult to them, never have, never will, because I don't consult to anybody, anywhere, at any time, and I have no investments in them whatsoever, or in fast food, or quick service, or whatever we want to call it. So I'm purely, my relationship is purely as a customer or consumer. Um, I applaud them. I know it's risk. There's a risk in this strategy for stepping up and standing out, um, stepping up and becoming essentially the point man against the misrepresentation of the the entire file by the Wynn government. And I say that very carefully because I want to get a couple of facts out on the table for everybody that have been completely misled. We've been misled by the Ontario government. It is the role of government across the Western world, including Ontario and Canada, to deliver social welfare benefits of all kinds. I'm using social welfare in the broader sense, old age pensions, unemployment insurance, subsidized housing, aid to students. That's all part of a broad category the OECD and statisticians call social welfare, or social assistance, or social benefits, national child care uh, uh, checks. That is the role of government. It is not the role of the private sector to alleviate poverty. Never has been. And for people to suggest, as Premier Wynn has very, very clearly suggested, that it's really the role of Tim Hortons in the private sector to address issues of poverty is simply false. It is wrong. It is wrong because of 300 years of our history. Or if you don't want to go back that far, go back to the, at the end of the Second World War and the rise of the modern welfare state. It is the role of government. If people are below the poverty line, that's the role of government to address. Now, the second point I want to put out very quickly is the argument has been made that this is a really great policy, minimum wage increase, because we're going to address poverty. This is StatsCan data. One in ten people on minimum wage are below the poverty line. Ninety percent are not. As Stephen, Professor Gordon at Laval and Professor Milligan at UBC have said, if you really want to address poverty, this is a really lousy, inefficient, incompetent way of addressing poverty because only one in ten are below the poverty line. And just while we're on this subject, because the image has been portrayed or suggested, and I get this actually from people writing me, don't you understand? Poverty skyrocketing in Canada. In fact, According to the OECD, Canada has one of the lowest rates of poverty on the planet Earth. We are one of the wealthiest countries. I did an op-ed on this. We are tied with Germany, the richest country in all Europe, in terms of average income per capita. We are an extraordinarily wealthy country. We have one of the lowest rates of poverty in the world. And only one in ten on minimum wage are below the poverty line. So using minimum wage to address poverty is a failed policy from the get-go. Now, that's the separate facts. Those are the hard facts from Statistics Canada. But she's now saying, even if it wasn't true, let's say we had rampant poverty, she's very clearly suggesting it's the role of the private sector to address poverty. No, it is not. Their job is to make goods and services efficiently so that you and I can buy them, whether we call them cars or apartments or houses or hamburgers or cups of coffee or furniture or all the stuff we buy from the private sector. And, and so that is the real issue. And Tim Hortons, I'm glad to see these, that their role is not to commit economic suicide because of poor or terrible policies imposed on them by the government. But with that in mind, then, Ian, should governments be even setting a, a minimum wage standard? 
I argued in an op-ed that was quite controversial, published in the Ottawa Business Journal, and I believe this very strongly as somebody who dropped out of high school 45 years ago in grade 12, and I was on minimum wage and unemployment for a period of three and a half years. So nobody has to send me an email saying, I've retired, professor, you don't know about what it's like to be unemployed or on minimum wage. Yes, I do. I lived it. And my point in telling you that story is, is that the minimum wage job, I long have argued, is the ladder to the middle class. It's where you, as a 16- or a 17-year-old who knows nothing about anything in this world, because you have no experience whatsoever, and so you learn to, you grow up and you mature and you learn on a minimum wage job about things like you've got to show up to work on time, you've got to brush your teeth, you've got to comb your hair, you can't smell when you come to work, you've got to have a shower. You know, you learn a lot of tacit things that we take for granted as we get older and we forget about when we get older because we've just absorbed it. It's just part of the way we act. And so we forget about these things and we forget that a 15, 16-year-old is missing tons tons of social skills, tons of skills of any kind. They don't know what debits, credits are. They don't know what marketing is. They don't know how to open the, you know, the, the store or close the store. And so the entry-level job, this is an entry-level job that is the ladder to the middle class. So in driving up the cost of the minimum wage, businesses are going to act as businesses do. They're going to economize on those costs. So what the Tim Hortons is doing is what all the other companies are doing. They're just not doing it so loudly. That is to say, they're taking steps to reduce because their cost just overnight went up 20%, 30%. And so they're taking costs to survive because they're not in business to commit economic suicide and go bankrupt. So they're going to lay some people off. They're going to cut back the hours. My own daughter has had her hours cut back, and she's a minimum wage, by the way. My partner's daughter has had her hours cut back in retail, and they were told we're cutting back your hours because our wage bill has gone through the roof. And so they're economizing, and this is going on across Ontario because there's no free lunch. If your costs go up overnight by 30% and your revenues don't go up 30%, of course you're going to economize. But, but Tim Hortons late last year... That, but that's only because she doesn't understand business. Late last year, Tim Hortons announced that they were raising the price of their coffee and their donuts and everything else right. uh, in anticipation of yes. this. Well, are they taking advantage of the situation? I mean, in other words, they've, they, uh, if you were to take it at face value, they've already made that accommodation by raising their prices. Now they're my, simply my saying, well, we still can't do anything. Bill, my answer is clearly they haven't. Why? Because they're doing it now. They're doing both. They're doing all three. They're doing, in fact, it's multifaceted. Big fancy word for saying they've got a whole bunch of different ways of coping. These are coping strategies. One is you're cutting back your hours of service. I didn't say you're opening later. You're cutting, the lineups will be longer. Well, I go, to, I, I go to Home Depot or I go to Loblaws and they're using more automated checkout counters. Okay, because they've computed. There's some really smart people upstairs in these head offices and they've computed the cost of an automated checkout technology and the annual operating costs, and then they compare and contrast that to the annual total all-in cost of one uh, minimum wage worker. And they know the break-even point, by the way. They've got the numbers really well down. They've got them down tight. And so they can compute with great accuracy the, the break-even point where it's cheaper to get rid of the person and use automated work, uh, labor-saving technology. And if some people say, this is terrible, this is corporate greed, this is how the private sector has worked for 300 years. You're not in business to commit economic suicide and fail and go bankrupt and throw all your workers out of work. So you have to always be evaluating all your costs to make sure that they are, you've got the best competitive uh, option, that you're using the best competitive and most efficient option. 
And so what they're doing is they're going to use less labor uh, because it's become much more expensive. This is just a no-brainer to anybody who has a modicum of logic. I'm going to I'm going to throw something else in here too because in in the interest of uh, full disclosure I uh, nor I don't have any interest in Tim Hortons either aside from being a customer but I know a few people that are franchise owners and uh, uh, there are only a, a very very few things that they can do to try to uh, infrastructure they have to buy their their materials from That's Tim right. Hortons That's those right. prices are fixed they can't say well I'm going to go get my flour from uh, No Frills now you can't do that That's right uh, they have to pay Tim Hortons the parent company well in this particular case it's it's now Restaurant Brands International those people get their money off the top before any franchise owner even puts a nickel into their pocket That's right. they've got to pay the the head office they've got to pay for all the supplies they've got to pay the staff they got to play the employees and 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 i think to your point it might be a little unfair probably is a little unfair to say well you know the restaurant brands international are the ones that are reaping the benefits each one of those franchisees is its own business that's right and uh, and and they're the ones that are concerned about their bottom line now i don't know if if any of them are in a circumstance where they're going to go out of business because of this but they're doing what any other mom and pop business would probably do in a situation like this and say well these are the the the, the one or two costs that we can control we have to do something about that because the head office isn't going to give us any wiggle room anywhere else. Bill, this is what every business is doing. Big businesses, little businesses, in-between businesses, medium-sized businesses, every business does it. And now I'm going to tell you a dark and dirty secret, okay? And this is what you'll never hear from many of the cabinet ministers of the government of Ontario or the, the labor union leaders. Pro- not profit organizations do this too. Does anybody think that my university has infinite resources so we can just put more and more people on the payroll and the hell with the consequences and we run up a deficit of $200 million? No, we cannot. We economize, too. So do hospitals. So do, so, so do unions. I know some unions in Ottawa that have laid off people recently. I'm not suggesting because of minimum wage. I'm just saying unions lay off people, too. You can bet, you can bet that they keep it very hush-hush. In other words, they are subject to the same, let's call it, laws of economics that a company or an organization must live within its means. Now, people can say, no, 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 government can just go back and just raise taxes. Yes, and politicians can be defeated in the next election, so they're rather loath to raise taxes to give more money to bureaucrats to, to spend more money. So that what I'm suggesting is every organ, this idea that Premier Wynne has put out to Ontario that there's something unique and special and greedy and horrible and irresponsible in Tim Hortons, and only in Tim Hortons, this behavior of what I call economizing, is just profoundly dishonest of Premier Wynne. Well, let me add- dishonest of her. This goes on in all organizations, and I've worked in six or seven organizations in my life, in the private sector, and the public sector, in small business, and in big business. And let me ask you then, in a related subject, which I think is very, very germane to what we're having the discussion about right now. Uh, if, in fact, uh, there is some validity to the argument that if you put more money into the hands of minimum wage workers, uh, they tend to spend it, they don't tend to bank it, et cetera, and that's good for the economy. Right. If you want to give some legitimacy to that, and I think there is some legitimacy. I don't think there's any, by the way. But uh, uh, Andrew Coyne pointed out, and I'm sure you read the article last week in the National Post, saying if the government is that dedicated to that, then what they should have done is developed uh, a guaranteed income program, not a minimum wage, right. because that puts the onus on the government, not okay. on the private sector, to, to, to basically do that and to fill that need. I absolutely agree with Andrew Coyne. I'm not a big fan of guaranteed annual income per se, but I would argue we de facto have 
guaranteed annual income because we don't let anyone starve to death in Canada. If someone truly has no money, we give them social assistance. Many of them, if they cannot afford their home or to, to, to apartment, we provide subsidized social housing. Uh, we have subsidized student loans. My goodness, we give grants to students now. We just give it to them whole as ballas. So my point is we've had a, uh, and now it's a hodgepodge of programs, but we have a backdoor version of the guaranteed annual income. Going back to your point, that it, and it's one of the great shibboleths and urban legends of our time, that, well, the program is going to pay for itself. My good friend Armin from the formerly of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, Armin Yelnazan has made this argument, as have the unions. It'll pay for itself. This is snake oil on steroids. You know, for 300 years in Western economics, we have known. In fact, ministers of finance in Canada, both liberal and conservative, have stood up and said, the only way you can increase your standard of living in the long run is through productivity increases, meaning increases in output. You can't just increase it by announcing a wage increase. Think about it, everybody out there in Radio Land. If that was the case, India could banish its poverty tomorrow morning. Just announce that everybody's going to get an increase of 50% on their, month, on their hourly rate or their annual salary. You could abolish poverty around the world, according to that nonsensical, silly argument, by just simply announcing wage increases for everybody. Test the theory. It's dumb as a bag of nails. You cannot produce long increases in the standard of living by simply saying, we're just going to give everybody more money. Well, and as I've long argued uh, over the number of years on this program, is if uh, that social assistance that you referred to, if it's not enough, if it's not keeping up with the standard of living and the cost of living, that the, the onus is on the government to do something about Precisely. that, not to go back to the private sector. In other words, we're not going to pay these people anymore. We're not going to give them any more money because uh, we want to keep taxes down because that's how you get reelected in this province, in this country. Uh, so we're simply going to go to the private sector. And, and uh, it, there's, a, there's a certain inequity to even that kind of a mindset from government. And listen, I, again, I don't want any of your listeners to say, I'm saying, well, if they're poor and they are broke, just, that's just too bad, cut them off. I have never, ever said that. I strongly supported the child benefit put in by Mr. Trudeau. They're just significantly raised the amount of money going into the pockets of lower-income moms and dads. But there you go, Ian. That's a classic example of government stepping up and saying the shortcoming. We're that's, that's, our, that's our job. We'll look after that. Exactly. That's if we want to look after poverty, increase social assistance, increase the child tax credit, increase the money going to single mothers, which is where poverty is now concentrated, by the way, in, in Canada. Statistically, it's not elderly people, it's, it's young single mothers. In other words, target those who need help and give them government help, government assistance. That's the role of government. Kathleen Wynne is trying to outsource her responsibilities to Tim Hortons. Ian Lee, always uh, controversial, uh, always fascinating, and always insightful. Ian, thanks again. Great talking with you today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business up at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.